Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to another episode of the Islamic History Podcast. Today we are continuing our discussion on the fall of the Ottomans and how the modern Middle East was created. In the last episode, just a quick recap, we mentioned how Russia had let it be known to their British and French allies that they fully expected to take possession of Istanbul when the Ottomans were defeated. The British and the French, they were reluctant at first, but they really needed Russian support in the war. As we had mentioned, the Germans were fighting a two-front war. On the Western Front, they were fighting against the British and the French. And on the Eastern Front, they were fighting against the Russians. Yet the Germans were holding their own, and the British and French were very afraid that if Russia dropped out and Russia was was really getting it handed, handed to them at this point in time. They were afraid that if Russia dropped out, Germany, which was holding its own against all three of them, would then be able to put all of their resources against the British and the French and will almost certainly defeat them. And so the British and the French, they agreed to let Russia have Istanbul, which, is, which they called Constantinople when and if the Ottomans were defeated. But the fact of the matter is, the Allies fully expected the Ottoman Empire to fall. In fact, the British had created a committee to figure out what to do with the Middle East when the Ottoman Empire fell. And this new committee, one of its members was a man named Mark Sykes, and he will play a role in this whole thing of much, much later, he'll play a, a very important role. But this committee was to advise the British government on what to do with the Middle East. And this new committee had already begun dividing up the Middle East into, into these new provinces and these new administrative zones. And these new provinces, they weren't based on any existing borders or any existing ethnic groups or even the Ottoman Vilayet system. These new borders were just created based on the committee members' whims. They just drew lines in the sand and said, this is Iraq and this is Palestine and this is Syria and just started handing out names. And so that's the recap of the last episode. So let's get into this current episode. We are going to leave London and return to the Dardanelles, which we mentioned is that little is a little uh, strip of water between the Gallipoli Peninsula, which is really part of the uh, European continent, and Anatolia, which is the uh, peninsula that we call Turkey now, or that makes up most of Turkey today. So the Dardanelles Strait with this little strip of water that goes between these two bodies of land. And because the British were so confident of victory in the Middle East, they were already celebrating in London, even though no real fighting had actually happened yet. Churchill, Winston Churchill, who was basically in charge of the British Navy, he was already confident of, a, of an easy victory, as well as most of the other British politicians in London. Uh, once again, none of them really expected the Ottomans to put up much of, the, much of a fight, and they fully expected this campaign in the Dardanelles and on the Gallipoli Peninsula to be an easy win and possibly even, even open an avenue for a quick defeat of Germany. Their thinking was that if they could 
defeat the Ottomans and conquer Istanbul, which was on, which was partially at least on the uh, European continent. From there, the Allied troops could then push up through the Balkans and hit the Germans from their soft underbelly uh, through the south. Perhaps turn the German flank and bring it into this war, which was really starting to put some strain on all parties involved. The death toll in this new war with all these fancy new weapons that the uh, different parties had was really exacting a very terrible toll on the European powers. However, there were several problems with the British attack plan in the Dardanelles. For one thing, the Ottoman troops were severely low on supplies and resources and ammunition. So they didn't have the heavy cannons to really try to lay waste to the Allied ships as they came through this narrow pass called the, Dar the Strait of Dardanelles. So even though the Ottomans did not have the heavy machinery to try to put a pounding on the Allied ships, they still didn't necessarily give up. So they used smaller arms and regular handheld machine guns and also howitzers, which are like small artillery shells. They used these to try their best to bombard and attack the Allied ships as they were coming through. You have to understand that the Strait of Dardanelles, to some parts, it can be very, very narrow. Some parts are only barely a mile across, and it's, easy, it's very easy for people to shoot that far with machine guns and also to use howitzers or small artillery to shoot that far. However, these small arms were really no damage. They really couldn't do any damage to these armored ships. They weren't going to hurt a, a modern dreadnought or a modern battleship. They could; These modern ships could easily withstand those things. Unfortunately for the British, that is. Unfortunately for the British, they, their minesweepers were being piloted by civilians. And so I'm pretty sure you know what a minesweeper is. I don't mean the Microsoft game from the 1990s. Um, minesweepers were basically ships that look for mines. The Ottomans and the British probably knew they they definitely knew they did this. Ottomans had mined the sea with explosives so that when a ship uh, passes over it nearby, it would explode and almost certainly damage that ship. But there were countermeasures to this sort of to these sort of mechanisms, and they used minesweepers to try to root out these mines. However, the minesweepers, which were a type of ship, these minesweeping ships were being piloted by British civilians, and even though the Ottoman howitzers and machine guns couldn't really hurt the minesweepers, the civilians were used to working under fire. And so they moved very, very slowly and they were very skittish about the whole thing. And so that was the first chink in the British armor. The next problem came when the British admiral who was leading this whole thing began to get sick. And he fell sick on March 16th, around the time that the actual um, battle and campaign began to take off. He fell sick. His name was... Um, Sackville Carden. He fell sick on March 16th, and so he had to step down, and his second-in-command took over. And some people believe that his sickness, the admiral's sickness, was actually caused by anxiety over the campaign. And so even though he should have been you know, battle-hardened and should have been able to get through this, it seems as if the campaign itself 
caused a physical reaction that made him so sick he had to eventually step down. And then finally, the weather was really bad during this period of time, and this forced the British and the French ships to move very slowly through the Dardanelles, making it a little bit easier for the Ottoman troops to attack them with whatever little arms that they had. But then the problems started mounting. As the British and French ships began to slowly creep through the Dardanelles, they started losing ships left and right. The minesweepers, which were being, once again, piloted by civilians, they were kind of skittish and they missed a lot of the mines. Also, the Ottomans had set up a lot of their mines. They were, the minesweepers and the British and the French, but for that matter, they were expecting mines to be laid out horizontally across the Dardanelles Strait. The Ottomans had done that, but they had also laid several mines going parallel along the shores of the uh, Gallipoli Peninsula and the shores of Turkey, the Anatolia Peninsula. And so they missed those, the minesweepers missed those mines on going parallel along the shores. And so as the British and French ships started coming through, them things started exploding and sinking. The first ship to go down was a French battleship early in the afternoon of March 18, 1915. Two hours after that, two British ships also hit mines almost simultaneously and they began to ship, then to, began to sink, that is. And then to make matters worse, the British sent another ship to rescue the soldiers who were now drowning on this ship. And as the, this British rescue ship, which was just one of the other battleships, went towards the sinking British ships. That one also hit a mine. And so all three British ships went down. And then, and then finally, even though those small little arms that the Ottomans were using to fight against the British and French ships, though they really couldn't do damage, it seems as if some of them did actually do some damage to one of the French ships, and so it had to run itself aground and basically take itself out of the fight. So within a few hours of starting the campaign, the Allied fleet had lost five ships, two French ships and three British ships, just like that. And this caught the British completely by surprise. So the admiral gets all skittish and falls sick even before the battle begins. His second in command, he takes over and within a few hours, he loses five ships. And so now he's also very scared about what's going on because he doesn't. this is not what anybody expected. They expected this to be an easy breeze through the Dardanelles, maybe have have a little resistance, but it's not going there. Uh, it's not going going according to plan whatsoever. And so, of course, they radio or send word back to London. And despite these early losses, the British politicians in London are still pretty much excited and looking for an easy victory. They're still very optimistic about their chances in the Dardanelles. So they send word back to the British and the French to just keep on pushing through and go toward, go forward until they get to Istanbul. And leading this, this 
thinking of continuing going forward was Winston Churchill himself. The British had intercepted a German uh, communications and they found out that the Ottomans, they had already expected it, but now they got confirmation that the Ottomans were badly out of ammunition and the Germans would not be able to send them ammunition and supplies quickly enough to stop this British fleet. And so Churchill is pushing his his navy to continue on because he has this secret information. Meanwhile, while Churchill is trying to push his his navy to continue on with his fight, British intelligence officers were secretly and independently trying to find a way to get the Ottomans out of the war. They were negotiating with some Ottoman officials They were negotiating, giving them a payoff so the Ottomans could once again withdraw from the war and be neutral again. And the Ottomans were willing to do that. They they were well aware that they were outgunned and not ready for this fight, especially after their early losses, which we spoke about a few episodes ago. So the Ottomans are willing to leave the war for a payment of four million pounds, this almost certainly British sterling pounds. But unfortunately for the Ottomans, that is, the British wouldn't give them one single guarantee. The Ottomans wanted the British to guarantee that Istanbul would not fall into Russian hands. But the British intelligence officers who were were trying to work this negotiation, they weren't able to give them that guarantee. Because once again, The British were so determined to keep the Russians in the war. And the Russians really wanted Istanbul. That was their main prize. They made it clear that no matter what happened, they wanted Istanbul when and if the Ottomans fell. And so the British would not give the Ottomans that guarantee. And so those negotiations fell through. Furthermore, when Winston Churchill found out about these negotiations, he had them cut cut them off immediately because he was feeling pretty confident that the Dardanelles would be an easy victory and the British would eventually take Istanbul anyway. But while he's thinking that in London, things are not going that great in the Dardanelles. This new admiral, as we mentioned, he was very worried and concerned about losing so many ships and men when these ships went down. The men who were on them, almost most of them died, of course. He was so concerned and worried about losing all of these soldiers and ships on the very first day of fighting. And so he was concerned he was going to lose his job and probably probably be uh, dishonorably discharged or have almost certainly would be humiliated for losing so many people so quickly. To try to get him out of it, fortunately for him, that is, uh, a bright shining hope came through. The British had finally sent land troops for an amphibious invasion of the Gallipoli Peninsula. These British army troops had arrived and they were supposed to clear the Ottoman bases along the Gallipoli Peninsula. And so for this admiral who had taken over for the admiral who had fallen sick, for this new admiral who had taken over, this was a breath of fresh air. This was the escape he he could use to try to try to remove some of the blame for the disaster that he was he was going through right now and hopefully he could shift some of this responsibility to save to someone else and save himself the trouble and the humiliation that was almost certainly to follow. 
And so the, the admiral met with the general who was leading this amphibious assault, and they both agreed that the army would now take the lead of the campaign, and it will, go, from this point forward, become a land affair. When word got back to Winston Churchill, he did not like this at all. He was once again in charge of the British Navy, and he wanted the British Navy to handle most of the fighting. He wanted the Navy to continue pushing through the Dardanelles and begin pounding Istanbul. He also, once again, he knew about the Ottomans' lack of supplies, and he knew the British ships were very close to Constantinople. However, when he brought it to the other members of the other members of the Navy Department, they overruled him. From their speaking, Winston Church, from their thinking, Winston Churchill was a politician. He was not an actual naval officer. He didn't have he had some experience in fighting, but he was not an ex, he was not a true admiral or anything like that. Most of his advisors in the Navy Department, they were real admirals and had experience at sea. And so they overruled him, basically saying that if the guy on the scene, if the admiral on the scene wants to hand responsibility over to the army, you really need to let him do what he has to do. You know, let him fight the war as best as he believes, because he's right there on the scene. And they trusted the admiral's judgment. And so they blocked Winston Churchill from ordering the Navy to push through. And all he could do after that was just plead with the admiral to change his mind. And the admiral wasn't trying to change his mind. He let the army take over. And so the Navy was now able to pull back. So while the British are in disarray and while the British are falling all over themselves trying to figure out what to do, the Ottomans are preparing for the worst. Really, the Turks are, are preparing for the worst. Istanbul was in a state of panic. They knew that the Allied ships are only a few miles away from Istanbul. And they had a few more mines in the Dardanelles to try to stop them, but it would, it would not be nearly enough to stop this huge fleet coming through. And so the Ottomans and the Turks, they were doing the, everything they could to get out of that city, out of Istanbul, as quickly as possible. They were beginning to evacuate the capital, Istanbul. And so they were gathering up important estate papers and archives and trying to get them to safety. They were getting the gold reserves out of the, out of the city and getting them someplace hidden. The caliph and the nobility and his family, they were put on trains and sent deeper into Turkey's interior. The young Turks, they had began stockpiling gasoline and food and fleeing the city. Some of the police began arresting Greeks and Armenians who they felt might side with the British. And finally, people were, some of the uh, soldiers were wiring and, and filling important monuments with, with dynamite so that if the British came through, they weren't going to get the Hagia Sophia. They were just going to get a bunch of rubble. And with all of this, with Istanbul and the people of Istanbul thinking and believing that the, their fall was imminent, 
the soldiers who were defending the Dardanelles and who were defending the um, the peninsula, the Gallipoli Peninsula, they began to withdraw. They felt that they had done their best, but they did not really, really stand a chance at stopping the Allied warships. They felt it was a stroke of luck that they had been able to sink five of them, but they knew they really couldn't hold these guys, hold off the Allied warships for long. And so Ottoman Central Command ordered them to uh, withdraw and abandon their post and to retreat to safety. None of them really knew how badly their minds had ruined the British morale in the Dardanelles. And so with Istanbul in a state of panic and the fall of the capital seeming to be just a few days away, the young Turks, some of the young Turks, the leader of the young Turks, Enver Pasha, the Ottoman minister of war, he decided to make some changes. He decided to hand over control of the military and control of the defense of Istanbul to the Germans. This was kind of new to him because the the Ottomans were were known for not uh, for not really wanting Muslim soldiers to be under the command of Christian officers, and so he didn't really want to do this. But Enver Pasha realized that he was in over his head. He had already once again he had failed in the Caucasus Mountains. We mentioned that before. But now he was really in over his head and he had no idea what to do. So he handed over the military and the defense of Istanbul to a German general named Lyman von Sanders. And so Lyman von Sanders, he took control and he actually did a pretty amazing job in organizing the Ottoman defenses. He didn't have them much to work with, but what little he had, he made it go as uh, he made it go a long way, made it stretch as far as he could. One thing to be understood, however, is that while the Ottoman military was in shambles after their early defeats in the Caucasus Mountains and also on at the uh, Sinai Peninsula, despite their early defeats, the soldiers who were defending Istanbul were the best of the best. They were the best, most well-equipped and best trained soldiers that the Ottoman Empire had to offer, had to offer. and so even though Lyman von Sanders was probably outgunned and outmatched, he had some pretty good soldiers working with, working for him. He had the best that the Ottoman Empire had to offer. And so with this knowledge and also with his knowledge of British capabilities, Lyman von Sanders had fought a, had been fighting against the British. He knew he had studied them. He knew their capabilities. He knew what they had. And he also knew their plan. He knew that British soldiers were preparing to storm the beaches of Gallipoli. And he also knew the British had a navy. So he was able to plan accordingly for this. And one of the first things he did was to promote a young colonel named Mustafa Kemal. Mustafa Kemal was promoted to command the Ottoman 19th Division, and this this part of the army, their duty was to defend the Gallipoli from the British amphibious assault. Lyman Van Sanders, this uh, this German officer, he seemed to recognize that this Mustafa Kemal had a fighting spirit within him, and so he promoted him and sent him off to go and protect the uh, the peninsula, the Gallipoli Peninsula. Now, I want you to understand, though, even though it may seem as if um, the Ottomans had bad soldiers, that really wasn't the case. 
the Ottoman soldiers, as far as just their fighting capability, were not deficient at all. They weren't lesser men or lesser soldier, soldiers than the British or the French or the Russians. In fact, they were actually pretty good fighters. Their problem was they had very bad leadership and they didn't have enough supplies. But in just tenacity and bravery and stubbornness, I guess, in the, in the face of fire, the Ottoman soldiers were well known to be very difficult adversaries. However, now that they had a competent leader in the form of Lyman von Sanders and Mustafa Kemal, now the British and French are about to see what they can really do. And so the British amphibious, amphibious assault begins. Leading the British assault on the peninsula of Gallipoli was General Ian Hamilton. Ian Hamilton was put in charge of the Gallipoli land campaign on March 12, 1915. Remember, the, the first British ships to be sunk in the Dardanelles happened on March 18th. Barely a week before that, Ian Hamilton was suddenly put in charge of this amphibious assault and sent off to Gallipoli to assist the naval invasion of the Dardanelles. He was told, as a matter of fact, while he was leaving, that most British and French politicians did not like this campaign. They did not want him to go on this campaign. They did not want him taking soldiers from the Western Front and going off into the Middle East to fight some, to fight the uh, Ottomans who weren't really a threat to anybody off in the Middle East. And so he wanted, they made it clear, the British politicians made it clear to Ian Hamilton that he was to wrap up this campaign as quickly as possible and return those soldiers back to the Western Front so they could continue fighting against the Germans. So Ian Hamilton was already put at a disadvantage. He had this pressure from from uh, London to wrap up the, the campaign quickly. And then on top of that, he was given outdated maps of the Gallipoli Peninsula. These maps that he was given were from the days when the Greeks were fighting for independence from the Ottomans. The problem is the Greeks had gained their independence from the Ottomans almost 100 years before this. And so he was dealing with old and outdated maps, and it would turn out to be a disaster for him once he actually got there. On top of all this, the British actually had an inkling that, some British, I should say, had an inkling that a campaign on the Gallipoli Peninsula and through the Dardanelles Strait was going to be very difficult. They had already did, had simulations and war games of their own, and it had proven to be very difficult to conquer Gallipoli. But still, Lord Herbert Horatio Kitchener, the British uh, Minister of War, he believed that the Turks, whom we already mentioned, were very tough fighters, despite the fact they didn't really, they usually didn't have good leadership nor good weapons. Kitchener believed that the Turks would quickly surrender, and he ordered the amphibious assault to go forward. Well, he's about to be proven wrong. So Ian Hamilton, he, he leads his soldiers to the Gallipoli Peninsula, and things start off pretty bad almost from the beginning. 
He arrives at the peninsula and realizes that the maps he has are pretty much useless. He has So he has no idea of the terrain and what he's about to get himself into. The terrain of the Gallipoli Peninsula was very difficult to navigate. It was very hilly and very uneven. Some of the hills ended right into the sea without any beach. They just hills that just dropped off right into the sea. And these, these places, soldiers couldn't really land on. They could only really land on where there was a beach. And so because of this, or some parts with beaches, some parts without beaches, this made it nearly impossible for the Allied troops to make, to, uh, if they were to, when they did land, it would make it almost impossible for them to assist each other because without beaches and with hills that drop off into the sea, you can imagine it's not going to be very easy to go from one part of the peninsula to another. Also, this this very hilly terrain with these hills that dropped off into the sea, this would almost certainly lead to troops being separated and stranded into several vulnerable pockets. And that's exactly what happened. So the Allied troops land on the Gallipoli Peninsula on April 25th, 1915, to begin the amphibious assault. The British and the French had brought together troops from Britain, France, India, Australia, and New Zealand. The troops from Australia and New Zealand were called ANZAC, A-N-Z-A-C, which stands for Australia, New Zealand, Armored Corps, I believe. But these ANZAC troops, they were some of the first to land, and they actually landed on the wrong beach, in the wrong area, and cut off from their from their fellow soldiers. They landed at a place called Ari Bernu on the northeast tip of the peninsula, and when they actually landed, Mustafa Kemal from the Ottomans, he, his troops had already taken the high ground. And so the Anzac troops, they tried to storm the beach, and then they tried to fight up the steep, the steep slopes of this hill. But Mustafa Kemal's troops, they held their ground, and as the Anzac troops tried to push their way up, Mustafa Kemal's troops just shot them right back down. It was very bloody fighting at these two sides tried to maintain their ground. Well, the Ottomans were trying to maintain their high ground, and the Anzacs, who were basically, once again, Australians and New Zealanders, were trying to gain the high ground, but they were making no traction whatsoever. So finally, all the Anzac troops could do was they had to basically dig trenches, just like they did in Europe. They had to dig trenches and try to hold on to the beach and maybe wait and pray for reinforcements to come. Meanwhile, the British, the other British troops landed at five other spots on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Three of these landing places, they met little to no opposition. The British were able to walk in really quickly. However, they were all separated from the Anzac troops who were stranded at Aribernu on the northeastern part of the peninsula. And so... The amphibious assault has begun. The naval invasion is stalled and they're not going anywhere. And the British are about to learn that what was supposed to be a quick and easy victory is going to turn into a very difficult fight. And in fact, this quick and easy, this supposedly quick and easy victory would turn out to be a 10 month slog. We'll see how it all turns out. So in the next episode, we'll see how the fighting on Gallipoli was affecting British politics. And we'll also take a closer look at some of the details of this campaign. 
So inshallah, that will come up in a future episode. I want to remind you that on the podcast I call Islamic History Exclusive, which is a podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast, we are covering Ibn Zubair's fight against the Umayyads. If you remember, we ended season three with the death of Hussein Ibn Ali at the massacre at Karbala. However, there was another person still um, still trying to oppose the Umayyads, and that was Ibn Zubair. He was still alive, and he was taking sanctuary at the Kaaba in Mecca. And he decided to continue the fight against the Umayyads after Hussein and his family were slaughtered at Karbala. And the reason why I think this is very important is that just like this series on the Ottomans, it's a, we're going into a lot of detail here on this series with the Ottomans. This series on Ibn Zubair is also very detailed. I'm going into some very fine detail as I go through the story. And I hope that it's going to be a, a long process before I finish that story. Same thing with this one. The Ottoman story is going to be, it's going to be um, quite a few months before we finish this one. Going to be several months also before I finish the story about Ibn Zubair, inshallah. The world we live in today as Muslims is heavily impacted by the events in these two series that we're covering, both the Ottomans as well as Ibn Zubair's fight against the Umayyads. So I strongly encourage you to take a listen to them. You have the Ottomans. I'm giving you that one for free, basically. But Ibn Zubair, is, it is a paid podcast, but it's only $4 a month. If you can't afford it, let me know. And I happen to know the guy who runs it. I'll see if I can get you access. But if you really cannot afford it, don't miss out on this because you can't afford the $4. Let me know and I'll see if I can get it for you. And now this is for people who who really cannot afford it now. Don't just ask me for access because you're cheap or you don't believe you should pay for anything online. Don't do that, all right? I do have bills to pay, and this this is the time I got to take for this, and other people are paying. So if I give it to you for free, then someone else is basically subsidizing your, your listening to it. So be sincere. Allah knows your heart. Allah knows whether you're telling the truth. If you can't afford it, let me know, and I'll try to get you access to it, inshallah. But... This is not something that we should miss out on. And if you can't afford it, then, you know, do so. Go ahead and get it and listen to it and learn about the events that led to the world we have right now. There'll be a short clip after the show, inshallah, discussing how Ibn Zubair took control of Iraq. But until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And finally, once um, Salama creates this own group to fight against Mas'ud, the chief of the Banu Tamim, he finally gets it together and he decides to send his men as well to help out with his fighting. And so Obeidullah ibn Ziyad's coalition is drastically outnumbered. Now the Tamim, their leader is now finally on board. You have Salama who was representing representing and recruiting for Ibn Zubair. You have the 500 Persian fighters and they go and lay siege to the Masjid. And so Mas'ud ibn Amr and this coalition, 
They thought they were probably trying to t- get control on behalf of Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad, but instead they find themselves in a whole lot of trouble. These Persian troops are very well trained and they are well experienced, and they are using something called Fanjakan. And this was a little difficult to is this is a type of weapon or weapon system that they were using against the Arabs who were holed up in this masjid. The Fanjakan, the I looked it up and I found two different meanings. Whatever it does, it allows them to fire hundreds of arrows at the same time. So, Fanjakan is one of two things. It, it was either a weapon or a mechanism that allowed them to fire 500 or so, you know, several arrows at several arrows at once, or it was a a methodology, a practice where the men were just coordinated and literally just fighting, firing volleys of of arrows all at once. I really couldn't find any um, solid determination of whether it was a machine or a weapon of some sort that allowed them to do this or if it was just a practice, uh, a fighting technique that they were using. So I personally like the idea of it being a weapon, so I'm just going to go with that, (laughs) because maybe it was, a lot knows best. I haven't really found out which one it was. I've I've seen both both explanations. But with all this going on, the um, Azd, who are mostly occupying the the masjid now with Mas'ud, on behalf of Omedullah ibn Ziyad, they are outnumbered. They are beaten. The Tamim, you have the Tamim, you have the 500 um, Persian troops, you have uh, those who were rallying around Ibn Zubair. They all come down this masjid and they managed to burst their way in, kill a whole bunch of Azd, men from the Azd uh, tribe, and even they pulled down uh, Mas'ud ibn Amr, this guy who started off not even want to have anything to do with Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad, got greedy, took the money, decided to join Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad. They pull him down from the minbar and kill him. He probably should have stayed away from Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends and family. You can also support the Islamic History Podcast and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. We have exclusive episodes covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the life of Ibn Zubair, the Crusades, and so much more. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.